I want to invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. And as you're turning, if you would be so kind to stand to your feet once again as we read the Word of God together. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. This is the Word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for uh, the beauty of the day. Uh, We acknowledge uh, your glory, as this passage says, in creation. And so as we uh, look around us at the beauty of the area that you have called us to, uh, we thank you uh, for this beauty. We thank you that it it calls uh, to attention who you are. And so, Lord, may you uh, stop us right where we are today. May we take time out of our busy schedules to come, uh, to meditate on your word, to learn from your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us and instruct us. And I pray that we would um, fully submit to the authority of God's word, that you would bring a blessing to each of us as we come together today as the people of God. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is, He is There and He is Not Silent. And this is a title that I have actually taken from one of my favorite authors. I know some of you have actually read the book that Francis Schaeffer penned, oh, way back in the early 70s that was entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. Francis Schaeffer adds, He has spoken in verbalized propositional form, and he has told us what his character is. We need propositional facts. We need to know who he is and what his character is, because his character is the law of the universe. He has told us what his character is, and this becomes our moral law, our standard, close quote. Now, not everyone, I'm sure you would agree with me, that not everyone speaks with the kind of clarity and certainty that Francis Schaeffer did. In fact, some people, as you're well aware, oppose the very idea of God's existence. Many of you are familiar with uh, a man who died several years ago. He actually died in the city of Seattle. And he was a a prominent atheist, a prominent scientist, and his name was Carl Sagan. His name became really a household name with what has become a famous quip that appears on the very first page of his book, Cosmos, that also became a best-selling movie series. Dr. Sagan writes, and I quote, The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. I want you to think about that. I want you to to ruminate on that. I want to have you meditate, but not too long, 
Because what he's saying is, is, a, is a very ungodly thing. Once again, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. He continues, our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There is a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest mysteries, close quote. Such is the hopeless worldview of an unbelieving, atheistic, materialist, and scientist. What you need to understand this morning is that chance rules supreme in such a worldview. Chance rules in the materialistic worldview. That is, there is no purpose in such a universe. Carl Sagan's universe had no purpose whatsoever. It just is. And anyone who questions the notion of a self-caused universe is labeled as uneducated at best and moronic or foolish at worst. It was Albert Einstein who said, I do not believe in a personal God. And I have never denied this, but I have always expressed it clearly. Einstein said, the idea of a personal God is quite alien to me and in fact seems naive. We need to know, however, that God is there, as Francis Schaeffer said. We need to know that God is not silent. And we need to know that He is a personal God. Now, the reality that God exists, not only does He exist, but He reveals Himself to His creatures. That is, you and I, is of a very... It has very massive implications. Here are several. The fact that God is there and He is not silent reminds us that we are not alone. Have you ever felt alone? To know that God exists and that He is not silent reminds us that we are not alone. The truth that God is there and He is not silent reminds us that we, we don't need to fend for ourselves. It reminds us that, that He not only likes us... Are you ready for this? He loves us. The fact that God is there, that He is not silent, reminds us that He not only likes us, but He loves us. This self-revealing God tells us what He is like. And He also tells us what He expects of us. Moreover, in the Word of God, He tells us how we can be reconciled to Him. We learn that He is the basis for morality. We learn that He is our basis for meaning. And we learn that He gives us hope and purpose and direction. All of these things are diametrically opposed to the worldview of someone like Carl Sagan. And so for the next two weeks, I want to direct your thoughts to God. As we walk carefully through the verses, 14 verses to be precise, of Psalm chapter 19. This week, I want you to see the very important reality that God reveals himself in creation. Most specifically, I want you to see that God reveals himself in the world. Now, there's a term that theologians have, have basically invented. Now, don't get intimidated with theologians who invent theological language. I, I probably don't need to remind you that the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. 
It never appears in the Bible. I remember one time I heard John Piper say that, that theologians and pastors and teachers need to develop words that are biblical but not necessarily found in the Bible. That may sound strange to your ears, but the word Trinity, which is coined by the theologian Tertullian, one of the church fathers, simply expresses exactly what emerges in the pages of Scripture. The same holds true for this phrase I want to teach you. Some of you are familiar with it. Others of you will be brand new for you. The phrase that is developed by theologians is the notion of general revelation. General revelation. Now, that phrase, general revelation, is not found in Scripture. However, like the word Trinity, it helps us to understand a very important reality that emerges in Scripture. General revelation, John MacArthur tells us, is God's witness of himself through the creation to his creatures, close quote. That is, general revelation reveals the God of the universe. It is a testimony to the goodness, the greatness, and the glory of God, as we shall see in a minute. These verses, verses 1 to 6, show us five crucial aspects of God's general revelation. I want to walk you through and show each of those five very important components of general revelation. The first is found in verse 1. Look at it with me. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. First of all, general revelation is a public pronouncement. It is a public pronouncement. Now, there are all kinds of ways to get the attention of people. And as I, as I sat for just about 10 or 15 minutes and thought about all the different kinds of ways, I, I surfaced a few I want to share with you. At the Kentucky Derby, for instance, you have the trumpet call. Who knows what I'm talking about? How many of you would like to hear me do it? You don't want to hear it. You know it exactly what it sounds like. There's the trumpet call. At Fenway Park... That other baseball team, you remember, at Fenway Park, before every Red Sox game, fans hear the play ball song. And so you know when the play ball song is sung that it's time to do what? This is a good crowd. It's time to play ball. In the Republic of Belarus, where I have spent uh, uh, three times teaching at the Bible college there, the last time I went there, the third trip, I had a chance to go to the opera. That is not my kind of music, i got to tell you. <laughs> Woo! Well, at the beginning of the opera, people are milling around and talking and they're at the, uh, gathering around and eating and, and drinking and having a great time, and you hear something. It's time for dinner. And it's not time for dinner. It's time for the opera. And that's all the Belarusian people need to hear is when they hear the bell, that means it's time to be seated. No directions are necessary. Unfortunately for me, I thought that after the first scene that we were done, oh no, there's three more scenes. And they last a long time. The illustration that's near and dear to my heart that I was sharing with, with uh, Nathan just a few days ago is I remember my grandma Steele. When the grandchildren were young and it was time for dinner, one of the children was the special bell ringer. And so from time to time she would say, Davy, I'd like you to ring the bell. And so it was this little thing. You'd hold two fingers. Right? Just like the Bell Russian Opera. That means it's time for dinner. And all the kids come running. 
Here we have in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the very most important public pronouncement the world has ever heard. And here we learn that there are two important aspects of this public pronouncement. We see in verse 1, first of all, that it's a declaration of God's glory. This public pronouncement is a declaration of God's glory. Look in verse 1, and and if you like to highlight in your Bibles, I would encourage you to highlight that word declare. Highlight the word declare. It's a word that means to make known. It means to make a written record, or in this case, to announce. It means to announce something. And we see here in this verse that the heavens in particular are, listen to this, are used by God to reveal God. Think about that. That the heavens are used by God to reveal God. The heavens, you see, simply include the, the stars in the sky. Simply put, creation reveals God. Have you ever heard an atheist or an agnostic or uh, just a run-of-the-mill unbeliever? We all have friends and family members who fall under that category. And they say something like this. There's not enough evidence to point to the existence of God. Here in one verse, we see very clearly there is enough evidence. For the heavens declare the glory of of God. One of the ways that we assure, are assured of God's existence is by gazing upon his creation. We simply gaze upon his creation. So when you look at the beauty of Mount Baker, when you witness the majesty of the Olympic Mountains, when you when you fall utterly captive to those beautiful mountains in Canada just to the north of us, You were drawn in by the creative handiwork of a living God. The declaration in verse 1 now is very specific. Namely, this is a declaration of what? It's a declaration of the glory of God. Once again, if you like to highlight, I encourage you, highlight that word glory. Because the glory of God is something we see from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end. It is a dominant theme, that is, the glory of God. Now, the word glory comes from a Hebrew word, the word kabod, that means heaviness. It means importance. The word glory means honor or reputation. Specifically, it is a manifestation of God's power. Now, the Oxford professor that you're well aware of, C.S. Lewis, the author of the, the famed Chronicles of Narnia series, said this, and this, this is not only instructive but encouraging as he draws some conclusions about the glory of God. Lewis says, and surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. I want to stop there. Once again, the word glory means heaviness or importance or honor. It points to the magnificence or the power of God. Lewis argues that this has important practical and personal implications for us. What is it that's so important about the the heaviness, the weightiness, the magnificence of God? Lewis answers, 
He says, for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. Now, here's the sentence that I trust will blow you away. Before I read it, I want to ask, have you ever just felt like something was missing? Like, And I'm talking to you as... Many of you, if not most of you, are Christ followers. But as a Christian, have you ever just thought to yourself, there's just this... In fact, would you raise your hand if you ever had that inner ache? There's just something not quite right. Only one? Jerry and me? Okay, all of a sudden, all right. There's this like... Lewis answers that. He says, the door on which we have been knocking all our lives... Those of you that raised your hand know what that's like. We'll be open at last. What will happen? We will witness and gaze upon the glory of God. 1 John chapter 3 says it like this. We will see him as he is. We will see him as he is. Jonathan Edwards notes several facets of this glory. Now... Jonathan Edwards, born in 1703, died in 1758. He was the well-known pastor who served with his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, at the Northampton Church in Massachusetts. He was actually fired from that position because he disagreed with his grandfather's view on communion. Uh, Some of you may be aware that uh, his grandfather, who served for many years as a senior pastor, he believed that the Lord's Supper was a a converting ordinance or a converting sacrament. Therefore, he would allow unbelievers to the table in hopes that God would do a work of grace in their lives. And Edwards, as his grandson and the associate pastor, kind of just went along with it while he served with his grandfather, the senior pastor. When Grandpa Stoddard dies, Edwards holds a meeting, and he says, we're no longer going to allow unbelievers to the Lord's table. That was the correct decision. That was the biblically faithful decision. But how did his church respond? They fired him. And so Edwards went from the eastern portion of Massachusetts to the western portion where he served the remainder of his days As a missionary to the Indians. He served with people who needed the Savior. And then I should tell you that the last few months of his life, he went back over to what is now Princeton University to serve as president. He received an inoculation for smallpox. He was advocating that the students receive that inoculation, but thought that he should be a good example and receive it himself. And guess what? It killed him. So in 1758, in his mid-50s, Jonathan Edwards died. I should also tell you, he is, according to most of the scholars and philosophers and theologians I read, not to mention the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I know most people don't even know what that is anymore. It's something gone. We now are a generation of Wikipedia. But in the generation I grew up in, the Encyclopedia Britannica called Jonathan Edwards America's greatest thinker. Now, there's weightiness to that. Here's what Edwards says about the glory of God. He says, God's glory is his internal excellence. It is his greatness. It involves his beauty. God's glory, moreover, involves all of his possessions. And the scriptures teach from cover to cover that God owns 
everything, including you and me. Edward says that God's glory refers to the fullness of His goodness and His grace. God's glory is the honor accorded Him by the creature. And then he cites Numbers 14.21 that says, But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. What is God's aim in this world? The book of Habakkuk also testifies to this fact, is one day this earth will be saturated with the glory of God. Finally, God, uh, Jonathan Edwards says that God's glory implies the praise that he receives from his creatures. In Isaiah chapter 42, you don't need to turn there, but in Isaiah 42, 8, we read, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so we see as, this, as we bear witness to the public pronouncement that this is a declaration of God's glory. But there's something else that emerges in verse 1. And there's a reason I'm laboring over verse 1. It's so very important. We not only see a declaration of God's glory, we see a proclamation of God's handiwork. Notice the second half of verse 1. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, like the word declare, the word proclaims, which I'd also encourage you to highlight, means to announce. It means to inform. It means to state emphatically and authoritatively. That is something that the American ears are growing weary of. Wouldn't you agree? That when someone proclaims something with authority, people react to it. Do you know that I hear Christians all the time saying something like this, don't be so dogmatic. Well, I think it's safe to say if the Word of God teaches it, what is the job of the pastor? Preach it. Preach it dogmatically. Preach it authoritatively. And that's exactly what's happening in verse 1. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. What is it that the sky or the creation proclaims? It proclaims the handiwork that God has sought to establish. Now, one would think that as we look at the, the public pronouncement that both declares the glory of God and also proclaims His handiwork, you would think that the nations would give God a standing O. Wouldn't you think that? Here we see that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Every single person on planet earth should be standing with outstretched arms, praising God, saying, You are the great and glorious God. Tragically, some people, however, do not respond to the revelation of God in the way that they should. Instead, what they do is they bring a, a series of presuppositions. And of course, a presupposition is something that I hold dear. It's something that I cherish. It's something that guides my daily decisions. It involves a value system. And what the unbeliever does is he or she imports his or her unbelieving presuppositions into their worldview. And therefore, when they hear that the, the glory of God is, is declared, when they see that His handiwork is proclaimed, they say, no, 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 not enough evidence. What they're doing is they're importing their unbelieving presuppositions into their worldview. And so I want you to consider with me, a, a, I think it's a really funny and tragic story about a man who 
teaches us that presuppositions matter, that presuppositions are everything. Once upon a time, there was a man who thought he was dead. Yeah. He thought he was... Thank you, Maria. He thought he was dead. And his wife was really, really concerned. And so she sent him to the friendly neighborhood psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist determined to cure this man by convincing him of one fact that contradicted his belief that he was dead. The psychiatrist decided to use the simple truth that dead men do not bleed. Dead men do not bleed. And so we put the patient to work reading medical texts and observing autopsies, etc., etc. And after weeks of effort, the patient, this goofy guy who thought he was dead, he finally admitted, all right, all right, you've convinced me. Dead men do not bleed. At that point, the psychiatrist stuck him in the arm with a needle. And guess what happened? The blood began to flow. And the man looked down with an ashen face and he cried out, My word, dead men bleed after all! (laughs) What do we learn about that story? This guy who, Maria, thank you so much for just seeing the humor of this crazy story. This guy had a presupposition that he was dead. And so despite the evidence... He continued to be guided by his presupposition. That's exactly what happens with an an atheist or an agnostic or a run-of-the-mill unbeliever. They bring, they import their presuppositions into their experience. First of all, I want you to see the public pronouncement. But second, in verse 2, notice that there is a perpetual announcement. A perpetual announcement. Here I want you to see that that God is constantly revealing himself. Verse 2 tells us that. Day to day pour out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. The psalmist says this. God is communicating to the creatures perpetually. That is all the time. And the psalmist says that God reveals two things. Two very important things. One, speech, and another, knowledge. Now, knowledge involves information about a person. In this case, information about God. With a strong implication of relationship to that person. And so, a few verses help us understand the importance of knowledge. Proverbs 2.5 says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And then in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Listen, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. That's where we're headed in America. That is where we're headed in the United States of America, is the knowledge of God is growing smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Do this. Ask a run-of-the-mill person where the book of Romans is in the Bible. One of the easiest books one could find. Ask a run-of-the-mill person where the book of Exodus is in the Bible. Ask anyone, what does John 3.16 say? And I think you'll be shocked 
with the results. There was a day in the United States of America where many, if not most, would be able to tell you where a book of the Bible was, converted or unconverted. And most could cite John chapter 3, verse 16, but the knowledge of God is shrinking more and more and more. So I hope you can see the importance here of speech and knowledge. God is revealing himself and he expects that we know him rightly. God is revealing himself and he expects that we worship him rightly. And the only way we can know God rightly is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 17, 3. Jesus in the high priestly prayer, he said, Now now this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and the Lord Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so this is why Schaefer's book becomes so important. It's why the catchphrase, he is there and he is not silent, is so crucial. It's the reason I entitled this sermon after the book. And so what I want you to see this morning as we, as we meditate on the perpetual announcement is this. Creation screams the existence of God. Today when you go home, look at the mountains. Look north into Canada. If you have a chance to go to Bellingham Bay, look at the beautiful water. If you have a chance to go to the San Juans, remember that God is revealing His glory. He's revealing His handiwork. So this is not only a public pronouncement and a perpetual announcement, but general revelation is also a powerful pronouncement. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That is, God's revelation is so powerful that there is absolutely no excuse for skepticism or atheism. This, indeed, is a powerful pronouncement. There was a famous philosopher who was an atheist, and he was asked, what will you say to God if it turns out that he actually exists? Now, remember, this philosopher is an unbelieving atheist, and he was asked, what will you say if you were wrong and you stand before your maker? And the unbelieving atheistic philosopher said, I will tell God, not enough evidence. Well, the Bible argues against that. Day and day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Psalm 29, verses 3 to 5 say, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. Yesterday... As I was, I was taking a walk, sometimes when I prepare for a sermon, I'll walk. And it's a little bit dangerous because sometimes I don't see where I'm walking. You know how that goes, right? And I, I was walking, if some of you know where we live, I was walking in the field by Everson Elementary, just walking in circles. Typical, that's my life, right? Walking in circles. And I'm, I'm, I'm preparing for the sermon. I get to this text, the voice of the Lord is over the water. And I, I found myself ready to yell, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Later in Psalm 29, the psalmist says, The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. 
A few days ago, we were at my mom and dad's house, and some of you remember that there was that horrible storm several weeks ago in the Olympia Lacey Tumwater area. My dad said, come out, I want to show you one of the trees. And it's this massive tree that's taller than the, the very tippy top of this sanctuary. And we walked in the backyard, and he showed me where lightning split right down the center of the tree, and now the tree's like this. You thought, one blast of lightning... Look at the word of God says, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness in my parents' backyard. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The powerful pronouncement tells the nations this, I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Isaiah chapter 46. Fourth, I want you to see when we consider this amazing reality of general revelation, I want you to see that it is a pervasive pronouncement. A pervasive pronouncement. Look at verse 4 once again. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs course, its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. This is a pervasive pronouncement. That is, the voice of God is universal and extensive. We see here that this announcement is throughout all the earth. It's not just in Sumas. It's not just in Mount Vernon. It's not just in Everson. It is for the nations. It is for the people of Bangladesh. It is for the people of Thailand. It is for the people of Australia and the people of China and the people of Scotland and the people of England and the people of Ireland and the people in the United States of America. This is a pervasive announcement. We've seen that this announcement is is public, that it is perpetual, that it is powerful and it is pervasive. But I want to tie this together this morning by showing you that general revelation is also an intensely personal pronouncement. It is a personal pronouncement. You see, God does not stand aloof. He does not stand aloof. Some of our founding fathers, most notably Benjamin Franklin, was a deist. I like to call him a modified deist. Because he believed that God created the universe. He created planet Earth. He created the planets. And then he went his own way, and he leaves the creatures to fend for themselves. Scripture argues the opposite. God is not a static deity. He is not as the deists suppose. He is not withdrawn from creation. You will recall that Albert Einstein refused to believe in a personal God. I want to have you turn with me to one passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. As you turn to Isaiah chapter 40, and as we look at verse 11, I want you to think. I want you to think about the words of of this man. 
I want you to think about the words of Albert Einstein who refused to believe in a personal God. And then look at Isaiah 40, 11, And you be the judge. He, that is God, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather or carry them rather in his bosom. He gently leads those with young. That is one of dozens and dozens and dozens of verses that point to this personal God who we worship. The God who reveals himself in creation is a personal God who desires to be in a personal relationship with you and with me. And so what does it all mean for you and me? As we look at these five aspects of general revelation, what are the implications? What kind of street value does this have to you and me? When we talk about a personal God who has revealed himself in creation, notice five things. First of all, since God reveals himself, we are without excuse. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Like I've already said, the atheist will never be able to claim ignorance. The skeptic will never be able to say that the evidence wasn't overwhelming enough. Why? God, according to Romans 1 and Psalm chapter 19, has been clearly perceived. Therefore, we have no excuse. And so God's self-disclosure, you see, becomes a built-in means of accountability. And I think that's kind of cool. But number two, the second... Point, the second principle of applications is that God reveals what he expects of his creatures. His eternal power and divine nature have not only been clearly perceived, but he has also revealed his expectations to us. And here is the line of reasoning that I hear from atheists. I don't believe God exists, and so I do what I please. Now, some atheists are more moral than that. In fact, I've met atheists who are very moral. But what do they do? They speak out of both sides of their mouth. How is it that the unbelieving atheist can tell a difference between right and wrong? Answer, God has revealed it to him or to her. He's revealed it. The self-revealing God has described our ultimate aim in life. He has described why he created us, the God who has the desire to see his glory spread among the nations, has created you and me so that we would glorify him. He has created us for his glory. Number three, God has also revealed the basis for morality. He tells us what is right. He tells us what is wrong. He tells us what he loves. He tells us what he hates. Ask yourself this question. Whenever you're faced with an ethical dilemma, how do I make a correct decision. When you go to fill out your income taxes and you say to yourself, wow, if I left this off, I could save me $2,000. Or if you're driving down the road and, and everyone else is going 75 or 85 in a 60 and you say to yourself, well, what should I do? How do you know 
what decision to make. Young people, when you're in school, high school or junior high or grade school, and you say to yourself, man, I could very easily slip the answer on the palm of my hand or in my lap, and then I can get an A instead of an F or an A instead of a C. How is it that you determine right from wrong? The answer is that God is there and he is not silent. And he reveals what he expects from his creatures. He is the basis for morality. Number four, God has revealed himself in his son. We learned this several months ago as we walked through the gospel of John. We learned in John 1.14 that the, the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you ever heard of a quote that's considered a keeper? This is a keeper. And I, I, I want to offer it to you in advance. If you want this, I will, I will copy and paste this for you and send it to you so you can put it on your refrigerator, so that you can put it on the dash of your car, so you can have it tattooed on your back. No, don't do that. This, this, I stumbled upon this as I was reading a sermon by Jonathan Edwards just a few weeks ago, and it is a keeper. Here's what he said. How astonishing it is that a person who is blessed forever and is infinitely and essentially happy should endure the greatest sufferings that were ever endured on earth. He's talking about Jesus. That a person who is the supreme Lord and judge of the earth should be arraigned and should stand at the judgment seat of mortal worms and then be condemned. That a person who is the living God and the fountain of life should be put to death. That a person who created the world and gives life to all his creatures should be put to death by his own creatures. That a person of infinite majesty and glory, and so the object of the love, praises, and adoration of the angels should be mocked and spit upon by the vilest of men. That a person infinitely good and who is love itself should suffer the greatest cruelty. That a person who is infinitely beloved of the Father should be put to inexpressible anguish under his own Father's wrath. That he who is king of the heaven who hath heaven for his throne and the earth for his footstool should be buried in the prison of the grave. And Edwards concludes with these words. How wonderful is this? And yet this is the way that God's wisdom hath fixed upon as the way of sinners' salvation as neither unsuitable nor dishonorable to Christ, close quote. God has revealed himself in his son. And finally, God has revealed himself in his word. And that is a mere preview of what we will look at and wrestle with together in Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 to 14. But for now... Before we turn our attention to God's revelation in the Word of God, we are forced to wrestle with this truth. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. My question this morning is, what is your response to the God who is there and is not silent? Are you responding with with simple trust? Are you responding with reverent worship? Or are you resisting him at some point? Is there some element where you are setting aside the lordship of Jesus Christ? I was talking to my dad yesterday. And I said, Dad, I said, in so many words, without giving you the full story... How would have Uncle Paul, that is my late uncle, who died a little over 25 years ago, a man who I had immense respect for, a man who pastored his whole adult life, a man who who preached the word with faithfulness and clarity and passion. I said, how would Uncle Paul have challenged nominal Christians? How would have Uncle Paul, how would have he come alongside and, and lovingly shepherded the flock without compromise? And without even thinking about it, my dad said, he just preached the lordship of Jesus Christ. And isn't that the answer? Because as, as, as one of your shepherds, it, it is sometimes uncomfortable but also necessary to bring someone along and say, are you submitting this area to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you submitting your talents to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you submitting your time to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you submitting your treasures, that is your finances, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you submitting your family to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Is there any stone that is uncovered? And that is exactly what my uncle did in his ministry at Valley Church in Cupertino, California. And that is what I seek to emulate as well. As I teach and preach, and I want to challenge you with the claim of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and ask you this, what is it that you need to submit to him? With the most gracious words that I can muster, how is it that you're, you're leaving something outside your Christian life? Where does biblical repentance need to take place? The most important phrase I ever heard from my counseling professors in seminary was this. In fact, if I would have heard this one sentence, I could have skipped the rest of the classes. One sentence. What does repentance look like for you? Some of you have heard that. Some of you, if we have sat face to face, I say, what? I see some of you shaking your heads. What does repentance look like for you? And it's a question I ask myself. Hey, Steele, what does repentance look like for you? You see, when you ask that question, there is not a simple answer. And it's not a yes or no response. It's biblical repentance looks like this for me. I need to organize my time better. I need to organize my treasures better. I need to begin giving sacrificially to the ministry of the local church. I need to begin committing myself to attending the local church, which is, I come every week. I come every week. What area in your life do you need to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? I asked Jason a few weeks ago if 
if he would be so kind, and he always is, to put together a, a package of songs, and I believe we have three this morning. And the reason I asked him for uh, the, the time to sing these songs is I want to have you linger for the next several minutes. I want to have you linger over Psalm 19. I want to have you linger over the notion of the Lordship of Jesus Christ as we extend our our thoughts and our prayers and our voices vertically to God. Ask this question, what does repentance look like for me? As the worship team comes, let's pray together. Father, you've made some things uh, very clear to us today, beginning with your existence. We understand that you are there and that you are not silent, that you are the basis for morality. You are the basis of, of meaning and purpose in this world. You have created us to glorify you forever. Remember the line from the shorter catechism that says, what is the chief end of man? answer the chief end of man is to glorify god by enjoying him forever and god we would admit this morning corporately and personally that we all fall short me included that there are areas that we need to surrender afresh to your lordship it might be time it might be treasures it might be talents it might be hobbies It might be a career, it might be a a friendship or a relationship. But God, we, as your people, desire to put Jesus Christ first. And so I pray that during this special time of worship, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us individually what needs to take place in our hearts. Show us what biblical repentance looks like. May there be lasting change, not change that just takes place for a few days or a, a few hours, but change that will impact our lives, impact our marriages, impact our families, impact our communities for your glory. And so we purposefully linger here in your presence for these remaining moments and ask the question, what does biblical repentance look like for me? In Jesus' name, amen.